Two Towns Over is a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of urban legends, conspiracy theories, and campfire tales to find out if there are any truths behind the legends. With dark humor and natural curiosity, we tackle the darkened streets of the town you all know. Welcome to the town with no name. This is Two Towns Over. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Two Towns Over Campfire Tales. I am Don. I'm Ruben. And uh, we're just going to take it light and easy today. We're going to do a... a uh, it's been a rough week for both of us. I uh, think Don's week, way rougher than mine, but still. <laughs> but um, we are just going to talk about Ouija boards today. Oh, yes. Yes. And I... Thank you for this gift. <laughs> and anybody who has a problem with me calling it Ouija board, kiss my ass. Because I actually looked up the pronunciation, and it could be Ouija or Ouija. So I prefer Ouija, because there's no fucking I at the end of the word. I mean, literally, you could also call it the planchette board. Yeah. Whatever the fuck you want. Talking board. It's not real. Yeah. Spoiler alert for the end of this episode. It ain't real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. So we're going to be talking about Ouija. Mythbusters did it first. I just got to point that out. <laughs> did they? I feel like it was either Mythbusters or one of those YouTube channels that came after Mythbusters, but yeah. did the same shit that Mythbusters did. Well, see, I know with Mythbusters, they didn't like to do what Adam Savage called the Oogie Boogie stories, like Pyramid Powers. He didn't like doing those. I think it was the. I think it wasn't Adam and Jamie. Jamie. I think it was the th- the, th- the other build team. Yeah, the build team. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about it later. I'm sure <laughs> we'll get into it. So uh, these days. So, anyways, anybody who has a problem with me calling it Ouija, kiss my ass, because that's what I'm going to call it. I don't give a shit. So, the Ouija conjures up shades of mysticism, satanic panics, and teenage bedrooms. The origin of the term is supposedly... That's a, that's a hell of a combination. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the origin of this term is supposedly lost in the sands of time, or created out of a compound of the German and French words for yes, we and ya, Ouija. I wonder which it could be, Don. <laughs> Well, we're going to get to that. But if you ask the Ouija board collector and historian Robert Murch for the real story of the board's name. Is yes. his name fully Murch, Murch? As in buy my merch. Well, it's M-U-R-C-H. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Um, a story of the board's name, and he'll tell you a different tale. One that connects the boards to two intriguing women. Of course he will. Yeah. So as one of the world's most active Ouija board collectors and historians... Merch has been researching the history of the object since the early 1990s. It's yeah, or- when it came about in like the what is it, the 60s or some shit? Uh, it was actually created in the 1800s. What? Yeah, it's been around that's, since the 1800s. That's a thing I did not know. Yeah, it didn't like it became like really popular in the 60s. I think that's when Parker Brothers. That's bought the it. one I'm thinking about. Yeah. Is when Parker Brothers. But I was <laughs> going to be like, it's it's a game. It's not <laughs> anyway. Um. We're not there yet. I gotta get. I gotta let you get to the meat of it. <laughs> now its origins are cloudy. He explains, rife with he said, she said squabbles and family feuds. But at least one part of the story seems clear. Two years ago, I don't know when this is written. Merch discovered a 1919 article in the Baltimore American in which one of the board's originators, Baltimore businessman Charles Kennard, states how the Ouija got its name. In 1890, Kennard gathered a group of investors to capitalize on the quote-unquote talking board, which was born out of the spiritualist movement and introduced to the wider world four years earlier. So we're looking at 1886 Mm -hmm. is when it originally came about. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But the Canard Novelty Company, as the fledgling business dubbed itself, had no name for its wooden board inscribed with letters, numbers, and the words yes and no. Thank you. Okay, I just want to say, the we are already there. The <laughs> origins of this board are a what? A Norwegian? Uh, is that what you said? Hold on, I'm sorry. Did I pull that out of my ass somehow? Uh, I think you did, because I don't see anything about Norwegian. Norway. Norway. Norwegian. Uh, born out of spiritualist movements. Canard Novelty Company. Yeah, it doesn't say. Okay, my point is just that it's literally the origins of this board are the Canard Novelty Company. <laughs> I don't know why I thought about Norway just now, <laughs> but I did. I don't know either. Um, on April 25th, 1890, Canard was hanging out at a Baltimore boarding house with investor Elijah Bond and Bond's sister-in-law, Helen Peters. The name's Bond, Elijah <laughs> Bond. Which I think is going to be uh, Idris Elba now. I have heard that rumor. I do not know of if that's confirmed or not. Oh, don't know. That was If uh, it is, that's the only way they're going to get me to watch another freaking James Bond movie. <laughs> I haven't seen one I don't think I've actually seen one since... Uh, the second or third Daniel Craig. I haven't even seen any seen. of the Daniel Craigs. Not one. I, and I hardly remember seeing any Pierce Bros. And I might have seen Goldeneye because of the video game. I, there, I've i seen some of the original Bonds. Some of oh, the yeah. Daniel Craig Bond. Not much else. Oh. It's not like my thing, yeah. really. According to Merch, Helen Peters was a cultured, affluent woman who became who came from a society background. She was also, according to Bond's letters, a strong medium, as opposed to a extra large. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> she's a strong medium, not a weak large. Uh, that night at the boarding house, the group waited with yes, their- Yes, we know what a medium is, you fucks. <laughs> Shut up. That night at the boarding house, the group waited with their fingers resting on the paddle-shaped planchette and watched as the board spelled out O-U-I-J-A in response to their query. When the group asked what Ouija meant, the board answered, good luck. But there was something Peters wanted to share. According to Kennard, she drew a chain from her neck and showed them in a locket with an image of a woman in the word Ouija written below. Kennard asked Peters if she had been thinking about the locket during their sessions, and Peter- Peters said no. That was good enough for Kennard, and the board had found its name. <laughs> so who was the woman in the locket? Well, Merch believes that it may have been Maria Louise Ramey, who went by the pen name Ouida, O-U-I-D-A. Don't know why. I And Kennard simply misread the signature. Ramey was a British-born writer who penned dozens of overheated romance and adventure novels set in exotic locales, plus critical essays, animal stories, and books for children. So a story right so a fictional a fiction writer with a novelty toy company has now given you your most demonic of of toys to contact <laughs> the planes of hell. Yes. Isn't that always the way? I just want people to understand that that's where where I'm coming from when I call <laughs> your shit stupid. <laughs> like your your intense belief that like Ouija boards are, yeah, I get it. If you think a thing is creepy, that's one thing. I don't like to use Ouija boards either. It's a weird feeling, even though I know that it's just collective agreement that's happening, whatever. It's it's hard to take people seriously for me when you can Google what are the origins of the Ouija board. Well, it was a novelty toy first. 
Then it was a novelty toy. And after that, in the 1960s, it was a novelty toy. <laughs> and like, but somehow that means we're going to, but because it's a little weird and creepy feeling, it contacts the devil and witches use it and shit. Fuck you. <laughs> Now, her books were bestsellers on both sides of the Atlantic, and even Queen Victoria was a fan. According to the Bloomsbury Dictionary of English Literature, in her later life, she lived mostly in Italy, indulging in an expensive and affected life with dogs and frequent hopeless infatuations. So she's living out the millennial dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eccentric and ostentatious, um, and scorned by many male writers, she but beloved by female readers, Ramey and her... What? A female author who men hate. I can't believe it. Especially in the 1800s. There's no way that that would happen even today. <laughs> um, Ramey and her signature apparently became something of a talisman for forward-thinking women like Peters. As Merch put it, in 1890, Weta's books were very important, so it makes sense that Helen Peters would wear a locket with her name on it because she was so educated and articulate. And like Weta herself, Peters was unconventional. She married late and to a man significantly younger than herself. Merch says her... Hey, by the way, science says that uh, that's the happiest relationship you can probably ever have. Older woman, younger man? Uh Uh-huh. And you marry later in life. Mm. It's like you're both already established. The power dynamic is a little bit more balanced out, you know, from society. Because, like, age gives you a certain authority over being a man, which I understand that that's going to ruffle some feathers, but I am on your side. I'm saying that that is fucked up, that it's still that just because I'm a man, I have more authority in a relationship or whatever. That's bad. But, like, it's still true. So it's like, you know, certain research has been like, yeah, you you want to marry, like, in your 30s, and you want to get married to a woman who is about 10 years older than you, or conversely, a man who's about 10 years younger than you. If you're straight. Science doesn't know about gay people still. Sorry. (laughs) But honestly, I think it's probably similar. You know, it's probably similar. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot about being, it's a, it's a lot about being in a similar place in your life and like being on a similar track. And that just happens to happen at different ages for men and women still. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so Merch says let's her talk about this stupid toy now. <laughs> her important role has been written out in Ouija history. When Elijah Bond described his all-important meeting with the patent office in Washington in his letters, he refers to Peter simply as a lady friend. But it was this lady friend who demonstrated the board's efficacy for the chief patent officer, supposedly leaving him white-faced and shaken. Were it not for Peters, the board wouldn't have either its name or its patent. Yeah. Oh, wow. A woman did all the work for this? I can't believe it. <laughs> for 20 years, I researched... Ladies, I just want to apologize on behalf of history. <laughs> We're going to do better. <laughs> We're trying. Uh, for 20 years, I researched the father of the Ouija board. The fathers of the Ouija board, Merch said. Turns out it had a mother. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. If you're thinking a guy who would take advantage of the grief of a nation to make a fortune is a little shady, Baltimore Magazine says you'd be right. Kennard originally enlisted the help of a furniture maker turned coffin maker turned undertaker to make the first board, then cut him out of the company completely. After making his Ouija fortune, though, Kennard cashed out and threw his company to the Sharks, a.k.a. his other investors. One of those was William Fold. 
Also in the picture was brother Isaac, and the two brothers embarked on such a bitter feud over the company that after William cut Isaac out of the picture, Isaac went as far as exhuming his infant daughter from the family cemetery and burying her elsewhere. William went on to make millions, but the family wouldn't reunite until Isaac's grandson and William's granddaughter called it off 96 years later. Now, William's story actually ends... I'm sorry, did you say 96 years? Yes. Jesus Christ. So, if it was the 1860s, you're talking about like the, right around 1950s is when the feud finally ended all over the Ouija board. So William's story actually ends with a weird coincidence. He died in 1927 when he was 57 years old. His biography says he was standing atop one of his buildings when the support he was leaning against gave way and fell. One of the broken ribs pierced his heart. What's weird about that? He, I was going to say, what is weird about that, Don? <laughs> he was fond of telling people he'd built the building because the Ouija board told him to. More evidence for the demon angle. God damn it. <laughs> You know, it's 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 a little wild that this is the man that's selling Ouija boards. Yes. yes. So I don't know how to explain it to y'all. It's advertising. He's advertising. Why'd you build this building? Well, the most famous thing I have. That's why. <laughs> Elon Musk, why did you build a new Tesla factory? I was making a fuck ton of money, and Tesla told me I should make more factories. <laughs> I have billions of dollars now. Uh, Elon, how did you die in an electric car? Well, I've only driven electric cars since I invented a fully electric car with my collaborators because of advertising, because I want you to buy them. So, of course, when it malfunctioned, I was in it. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> So Helen Peters, the medium with the locket, had her family destroyed by the board she helped name also. Historian Robert Murch came across her part of the story, stating, starting with a series of letters published in the Baltimore Sun. They were basically a list of grievances Ouija board investors started flinging at, her, at each other. Published in the city's paper, presumably because the internet hadn't been invented yet, but the human desire for sharing too much information is as old as time itself. Peters went from being an original investor and working on the patent application to completely condemning the Ouija board as something evil. It started when her family found some of their Civil War memorabilia was missing and decided to ask the board what happened to it. As you can guess, it didn't end well. The board identified one family member as the thief, and while some believed the board, Peters didn't. The following feud tore the family apart. Peters condemned the board as a liar and warned others not to use it. Now, today, the Ouija board might be something of a party game that people don't take too seriously, or at least they don't want to admit they take too seriously. But it first got popular for a very serious and very heartbreaking reason, the Civil War. Robert Murch says via Time magazine that the overwhelming majority of families were touched by the war in some way, mostly by deaths and disappearances. Families wanted to know what happened to their loved ones. And when you're looking for those kinds of answers, you're willing to look anywhere. He says, you wrote letters, you waited for a response, and in the meantime, wanted to know if your son or father was okay. The Ouija board gave the promises of answers, and even if it didn't actually give those answers, hope was enough to make it popular. That I understand and sympathize with. Yes. Now, you can't just laugh at our old-timey ancestors either. I would never. <laughs> Parker Brothers bought the Ouija board in 1966 at the height of the Vietnam War. 
1967 was the only year a board game outsold Monopoly. So according to a story in Robert Murch, again via Time Magazine, it wasn't until 1973's The Exorcist that people started making a major connection between the Ouija board and the devil. In that movie, the character... 19 what? 1973. Okay. In that movie, Reagan, the main character, uses one of one of the uses a Ouija board to contact the demon that goes on to possess her. Isn't it like Pazazu or something? Pazuzu. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the world never looked back. The danger was there. The danger was legit, and the movies tapped into it. Now, the Ouija board has, rightly or wrongly, been linked to a lot of weird stuff. But the weirdest might be the strange saga that unfolded in Buffalo, New York, in 1930. Early on the morning of March 6, 1930, the wind was deathly still on the reservation. Cataraugus Creek, still frozen in places, wound through tall strands of trees, stark and silent against the gray dappled skies, while two figures wrapped in dark overcoats and scarves walked slowly below the branches crowded thick with black crows. This sounds like the beginning of that gorilla's song. Which one? I don't know. Uh, I know two gorilla songs, Clint Eastwood and Feel Good. It's... Oh, man, why can I never remember it? It's the one about the happy people. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? No. Fire coming out of the monkey's head. Okay, that's the name of the song? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Now, among the snowy hilltops in this bleak tableau, the only moving elements were these two Cayuga women, Lilla Jimerson and Nancy Bowen. They were making their way five miles across the Cataraugus Indian Reservation to catch the electric trolley that whisked riders up the Lake Erie shoreline from Dunkirk to Buffalo in just one hour. That sounds like a like an old song, from Dunkirk to Buffalo. <laughs> That's what would be the country version of Deathstrokes. <laughs> the cowpies. The cowpies. Um, at speeds of up to sixty-five miles an hour, in one—that's fast for nineteen thirties. Jesus. Um, but in one of the deep pockets of her long wool coat, Bowen, a 66 year old Native American herbalist and traditional healer, clutched a crumple wad of paper. In the other pocket, her callous fingers ran along the smooth glass bottle of chloroform procured from the village nearby, near the Indian Territory. She also carried a heavy heart filled with grief over the recent death of her husband. I love this name. Every time I read it, I smiled. Sassafras Charlie. Beautiful. Isn't it? That's great. <laughs> I, I wasn't. I was expecting it to be like, I don't know. It puts a smile on your face to say it. Yeah, Sassafras Charlie. Sassafras Charlie. <laughs> I fuck with that guy. <laughs> with unless he's racist or something. But I mean, well, he's dead. Obviously, <laughs> like what? <laughs> I just meant conceptually. Um, with whom she practiced national traditional medicine for most of her life. Bowen was well-versed in the uses of native plants and herbs in healing. Here, passing a white oak, she may have thought how she'd been taught to boil the bark and drink the tea to calm an upset stomach. She knew where to dig for poke root to chew and how to make poultice from the secretions of earthworms and other herbs to heal wounds. Mm -hmm. Jimerson, 30 years her junior, was at a different, more improbable point in her life. For the past five years, the resident of the reservation had been working as a model for a gifted French sculptor named Henri Marchand, who had honed his skills in Europe under the tutelage of continental master Auguste Rodin. Marchand had come to western New York at the request of Chauncey Jerome Hamlin, 
president of the Buffalo Society of Natural Scientists or Sciences. Hamlin, a Buffalo attorney who served as Theodore Roosevelt's Western New York campaign manager for the Bull Moose Party, ran for lieutenant governor of New York himself in 1914, but lost. Um, after service in France in World War I, he gave up practicing law. Instead, he dedicated himself to public service, sitting from 1923 to 1929 as president of the American Association of Museums, among many other civic endeavors. Hamlin admired Marchand's expertise in making dioramas, the lifelike three-dimensional displays that depicted scenes from nature and history using wax figures and other objects placed against the painted background. Still the 30s? Yes. Mm -hmm. Usually encased in glass. Now, Marchand had built a reputation as a master in this field. Can you, okay, real quick, can you imagine living in a time where a dude who makes dioramas is like the coolest guy? <laughs> or the guy who's in charge of museums? Yeah. This is like the hip crowd. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, man. Marchand had built a reputation as a master in this field, though his work, through his work at the New York State Museum in Albany, where he constructed their celebrated dioramas depicting Iroquois life. In 1925, Henri Marchand arrived in Buffalo with his wife, Chotil Clotilde, that's such an odd name, and his children. Sons Paul and George would help him in the construction of the dioramas commissioned to coincide with the grand opening of the Buffalo Museum of Science, scheduled for 1929. Another son, Henri Jr., was just six years of age when the family arrived and took up residence at 576 Riley Street, a short walk from the museum site. In the course of doing research for dioramas depicting Seneca life, Henri and Clotilde would stay in a cottage on the Cattaraugus Reservation. The Native American tolerated their benign presence there. Clotilde, an artist herself, did sketches of plants and animals and collected wild mushrooms. While mushroom hunters were common in Europe, the practice was a strange curiosity to the locals. Meanwhile, as he had done on reservations... It's a curiosity to me as well. What the fuck is a mushroom hunter? People who hunt mushrooms. People who go out and get much like truffles and why for food and medicines, okay, and psychedelic experiences. That's not a. That's just a person. <laughs> what makes that okay for real though? Like mushroom hunter sounds like bird watchers. Like I understand what a bird watcher does. They go out. They've got a little book full of what kind of birds there are, and like they just look and they're like, oh shit, I saw a rare bird. Or, oh, cool, another finch, or whatever. <laughs> what is a mushroom hunter hunting? Like, like how do you hunt? A, like, if you if, if a mushroom, can you just make a mushroom? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you would have to find the original mushroom to get the spores, and then plant the spores to have, or set up the decaying material for the mushrooms to grow. That's such an early 1900s-ass hobby. Thank you. Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> Oh, man. Y'all don't have stamps yet? Get the fuck out. <laughs> Meanwhile, as she had done, as he had done on the reservation in the eastern part of the state, Henri set about posing models in primitive scenes in an attempt to depict what was already, by then, a vanished Native American way of life. In this way, Lila Jimerson entered her little corner of the art world. And as the relationship between artist and subject grew more candid, he would take her for rides in his automobile. It was for Mershon that Jimerson had consented to bear her breasts as a model for the sake of historical authenticity, but only after the two had made love. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Much later, speaking, speaking under oath, 
Marchand would describe this behavior as quote unquote professional necessity for an artist in need of topless models to inspire his work. So he had to have sex with her. Was, I had to fuck this woman, Your Honor. Yeah, it was the only way to get her shirt. It was the only way. <laughs> it was for artistic for integrity. Historical <laughs> integrity. Twelve-year-old Henri Marchand Jr. returned home from school on March seventh, nineteen thirty, and walked in on a gruesome scene. Oh no! Blood spattered the wallpaper and baseboard in one corner of the room. A tall electric floor lamp had been tipped over. His mother's pretty flower vase lay smashed and scattered on the rug. Stems bent and broken, with a few petals soaked and sticking to the dark hardwood floor. The large cabinet radio, around which the family gathered to listen to music and dramas of the time, was now toppled over at the foot of the stairs. Beneath it, his mother, Clothilde, lay dead. Blood was congealing on her forearms, and savage wounds to her forehead marred her sweet, lifeless face. The terrified boy ran the few blocks across tree-lined Humboldt Parkway to the Buffalo Museum of Science to get his father and older brother Paul. Upon their return, his father summoned a doctor from Deaconess Hospital, which was then located across the street from the home on Riley. When the physician examined her, he estimated that Clothilde had been dead for about two hours. Two detectives and one police officer soon arrived on the scene. The appearance of foul play was obvious. What? No way. (laughs) Well, a lot of people spontaneously start bleeding from the forehead. That's what I'm saying, Don. I can't believe that they would think that foul play was a part of it. (laughs) People often always, uh, people also often end up under a radio radio at the bottom of some stairs (laughs) just on their own. It happens. (laughs) So two detectives and, uh, yeah, Uh, official autopsy was ordered. Clothilde's body was removed from the house while detectives took notes on the scene and went outside to question the few neighbors who'd begun to gather curiously around the police presence. One witness claims to have seen two Indian women casing the house earlier. By the way, I'm only saying Indian because it's written that way. Because in 1930s, that's what people would refer to them. Yeah, blame the natives, you fucking pricks. Every time they passed the place, they would pause, appearing to examine it, the witness reported. The autopsy revealed blunt force trauma to the head and wounds consistent with those left by a claw hammer. I do say that not knowing whether or not these native women did kill this lady or not, (laughs) but I'm going to guess probably no. Well, under inspection of the dead woman's throat, the examiner extracted a tightly bound wad of paper that had been soaked in chloroform and stuffed there. It was determined while she was still alive. Mm. After gathering more specific information from Henri Marchand, Mm. the police drove to a remote part of the Cataraugus Reservation and arrested Lila Jimerson at her father Anson's house by 10 o'clock that night. In custody back in the city, she implicated Nancy Bowen. Again, the authorities drove back to the reservation and made an arrest, bringing Bowen back to Buffalo the next morning. She was discovered to have kept bloodied pieces of her of her clothing. I'm sorry, of Clothilde's clothing and other articles. Hmm, so she did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in short order, both women confessed to the crime. I don't apologize for my earlier reaction. <laughs> Bowen, belonging to a traditional community among the Iroquois, was more adept at her native tongue than she was at English. Later, at trial, she would speak through an interpreter. What follows is the story that emerged at police headquarters. Lila had known the Marchands for nearly 10 years, though Henri's foray into various, through Henri's forays onto various reservations. The intimacy of their relationship had evolved into an infatuation, and she determined to kill Clothilde to get her out of the way before ultimately marrying Henri. 
Nancy was recruited by Lila to carry out the scheme. So it's a classic kill my boyfriend's wife yes. scenario. So now we finally get to why the Ouija board is involved in this. I was going to say, <laughs> this sounds like just a classic, I hired a hitman. <laughs> like, According to their confessions, this recruitment included the use of a Ouija board. Nancy, whose traditional beliefs may have predisposed her to accepting the spirit world as real, was readily convinced by an experience with the talking board. In one alleged session, shortly after Sassafras Charlie's death, the two asked... I cannot. <laughs> Deal uh, with that. I can't. <laughs> I'm serious. It made Her me name st- is literally like Lyra Medicine Woman, and this dude's name is Sassafras Charlie. <laughs> every Because th- I was reading this like to oh. kind of get a reading, you know, how it sounds. And oh, every time man. I read that, I would just start smiling. Just... <laughs> Sassafras Charlie. <laughs> The two asked questions about his sudden passing. Fingers lightly touching the planchette, Nancy asked Charlie why he had died. Letter by letter, the heart-shaped piece of wood under their fingertips moved around the board, spelling out a shocking revelation. They killed me, was the reply. Pressing for more details, Charlie, from the spirit world, slowly revealed the name of his killer. I mean, no it wasn't. It was the other person whose fingers were on that fucking planchette. Because it spelled out Clothilde. Yeah. Could have called that one. <laughs> Continuing the seance, Charlie... Man, Clothilde didn't do shit but have some kids and be sweet in this story. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Continuing the seance, Charlie added details like the murderers... Zero out of ten would not read again. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie added details like the murderer's address on Riley Street... And a description of the short woman with missing teeth and a bob. Wow, that's too far. <laughs> wow. Her phone number is... This is her social security. I know we don't have those yet, but here's her social security number. Lila, awestruck, told Nancy she knew a woman fitting that description to a T. What? Yes. No way. <laughs> Soon thereafter, Nancy began receiving a series of strange, mysterious letters from an unknown Mrs. Dooley. Definitely, what, what's the other lady's name again? Lila. 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 Yeah. Definitely from Lila. Gotta yeah. be. From one of the letters, I know something secret. I decided that I'd better tell you and help you out what I can. This is what I know Charlie Bowen is killed by a witch in the city of Buffalo. It was from a French woman. She killed Charlie because he have good medicine to sell in the city. Her witchcraft didn't work so well, so she decided to kill him. She killed many, many that way, Indians and white. But let me tell you more, she said. Or she said she fixed another doll, the same this doll to his wife, Nancy. Not only had Clotilde killed Sassafras Charlie, but she was now focusing her hex on Nancy. The widow decided she had done she was done fooling around. So she received a letter basically saying that Clotilde was a witch and had set up to kill Nancy as well. After the, uh, as Nancy and Lila ro- rode on the trolley toward Buffalo, Nancy was determined to slay the evil white witch responsible for her husband's death. Chloroform in hand, she purchased a 10-cent hammer at a shop on Jefferson Street. Then, they then headed to the Marchand house on Riley. After determining that the coast was clear, which is to say that Clotilde was home alone, Lila called upon Henri at the Science Museum and asked him to take her for a ride around town in his car. Later, Henri would confirm this. Indians love to go for automobile rides, he explained. 
the two crews. I am. Hey, (laughs) hey, man, I know your wife just got murdered and all. And I'm real sorry about that. But I just need you to understand that um, it's not just Native Americans who like to go for automobile rides. Everybody likes automobiles. They're novel. (laughs) Even now, they're cool. We still (laughs) like them. We drive too much even. So much that it destroys the planet. But we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Just going to say, like, I don't need to be bringing that in there. As they embarked on their ride, Nancy, af- yeah. Yeah, as they embarked on their ride, Nancy knocked on now, the door. Now, wait a minute. This guy has fucked Delilah before. This is the yes. same dude? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, honestly, kind of fuck you, guy. <laughs> as they embarked on their ride, Nancy knocked on the door at Riley Street. Cofilde answered, and recognizing her from the reservation, allowed Nancy in. Nancy may have been further astounded by the voices coming from the strange piece of furniture she'd never seen on the reservation, a large radio. This is also a classic example of somebody with, like, you know, don't, it ain't like it's the other that's the enemy. The enemy is like Lila, the person from your culture who is using your belief system against you to make you do horrible things. Exactly. So, um, Nancy, cutting to the chase, asked Clothilde, you witch? Amused by the odd question, Clothilde laughed and confirmed that she was. Nancy brought the hammer down on her head, and after a struggle in which the chloroform ball ball was forced down her throat, Clothilde succumbed to the larger woman. Now, Erie County District Attorney Guy Moore felt he had everything he needed to rush forward with a speedy trial. In just two weeks, the jury had been selected for the capital case against Lila Jamison. Jimerson. In the interim, Moore was a generous was generous to the ravenous press who converged on Buffalo from around the world. He deliberately characterized the bizarre scenario as a quote unquote Indian crime, Jesus. speaking to make the case an indictment of the Iroquois people as a whole and specifically the traditional Iroquois. As if white women don't do the same shit. <laughs> this is like an original Karen, basically. I'm telling you. <laughs> See, that's why I don't apologize for my first reaction. Blame (laughs) it on the natives, because that's exactly what they're doing. They're being like, only native women would do something so crass and horrible. (laughs) And it's like, nah, dog, even to this day, I know a story about a lady who fucking hired a hitman to kill. I mean, fucking Carol Baskins. Get the fuck out of here. Hey, Carol Baskins is innocent. That bitch, Carol Baskins. (laughs) Um, innocent of murder, maybe innocent of covering up a murder. I doubt it. <laughs> now, state law enforcement officials began invading the reservation. Initially, they began a search for the hammer used in the murder. Nancy claimed to have tossed it in a creek near Lila's house. When that search turned up nothing after a week, law enforcement used the pretense of this quest to enter people's homes and generally poke around where they had no right to do so. What? Law enforcement overstepping their boundaries? can't believe it. <laughs> Indiscriminate searches with no warrants became their method of operation. What? I can't believe it. <laughs> Ray Jimerson, a Seneca chief, protested the trespassing to no avail. The witchcraft angle went wild in the press. The state went so far as to exhume Sassafras Charlie's body. Sassafras? <laughs> ain't no need to mess with old Sassafras. <laughs> we have a new character, everybody. <laughs> Um, where's it at? Yeah, to debunk a widespread rumor that Nancy had, in fact, shot her husband accidentally while aiming at demons near him. No godshot wound was discovered, though. 
It was not until March 15th that District Attorney Moore turned any suspicion toward Henri Marchand. On that day, he was arrested as a material witness. Moore had little choice considering the fact that a newspaper called the Buffalo Times printed four love letters that Henri had sent to Lila over a period of two years. Mm-hmm. Now, the widower was seen as having a motive to kill his wife. The letters also proved that he had consistently lied to the police about the nature of his relationship with Lila. The fact that the damning letters were... I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Lila Jimerson. Lila Jimerson. <laughs> I swear on Sassafras Charlie. I swear on Sassafras Charlie. <laughs> the fact that the damning letters were handed over by Lila's family to journalists shows the level of alienation people on the reservation felt towards the state's legal system. Ordinarily, that sort of evidence would be entrusted to the police, not to a reporter. Yeah, when people get so fed up, they're, they're like, we're not going to take care of this privately no more. We're going to put you on blast. <laughs> I mean, you fucked up. Sensing an inadequate defense of the two Indian women, Seneca leaders sought legal help from the federal government. The assistance was denied until Chief Clinton Ricard made a trip up to Buffalo as the trial began. Here is his account from his autobiography, called Fighting Tuscarora. Tuscarora. The next day I went to Buffalo to visit United States Attorney Richard H. Templeton and ask him, asked him to represent Lila Jimerson, as he was required to do by law. He became very angry at this and claimed that there was no such law. He said that it is not the business of his office to help murderers. He and I argued quite heatedly for a time, and then I produced a law book that contained my proof. It was the 1926 edition of the Code of Laws of the United States that had been given to me by Congressman Clarence McGregor. Hmm. Title 25, Chapter 5, Section 175 said, In all states and territories where there are reservations or allotted Indians, the United States District Attorney shall represent them in all suits at law and in equity. Upon reading this, Mr. Templeton put in a call to Washington, D.C. While he was in his office making the call, his assistant told me, He's going to beat you with a bigger book. The response from Washington, however, reaffirmed my claim. Thereupon, Templeton called the court where the trial was in process and requested a recess until he could enter the case. When the trial finally began, Henry Mar- I love to see that win, that specific type of win. Yeah. Where it's like, no, I'm not going to help you. Well, actually, you have to because you wrote a law that said you did. So fuck you. (laughs) So when the trial finally began, Henri Marchand's testimony stole the show. The free-loving Frenchman described Indian women as naturally shy and explained that he had seduced too many of them to count over the years in order to get them to post topless for his projects. So he's a dog. Oh, yeah. A French dog. So, bulldog? No. Poodle. Poodle. They're a poodle. Yeah, he's a poodle. It was done out of necessity, he said. Poodle's notoriously the most horny animal. (laughs) (laughs) Lila was just one of them, he said, and it, he did not love her. Further, because he his wife knew all about his infidelities. Doubt that. <laughs> doubt that very seriously. Yeah. And accepted them. He had no reason to murder her. Throughout the proceedings, a white audience filled the courtroom, while Native Americans filled the halls of the courthouse, eager to bear witness to daily developments that splashed across headlines everywhere. The defense took one day to present its case. The letters from Mrs. Dooley were shown not to match Lila's handwriting. 
which suggested at least a third party in on the scheme. This discounted D.A. Moore's jealous lover argument because there are rarely collaborators in such crimes of passion. Mm -hmm. They They were trying to spare Lila from a trip to the electric chair. Because Nancy Bowen was 66 years old and appeared to have an unwitting, been an unwitting dupe distraught over her husband's death, her husband, of course, Sassafras Charlie. Sassafras Charlie. She was not a candidate for capital punishment. Her heartfelt belief in Iroquois witchcraft also rendered her incapable of understanding her actions. The mens rea for murder was not there. Yeah, see, that's part of, that's crazy. That is like legit, like, if you believe in spirits and you believe that a spirit told you to do something, yeah, and then you, as per your religion and beliefs, do the thing the spirit told you to do, they can't kill you for it, at least. Yeah. They'll lock you up. <laughs> they, they might um, not kill you. On April 1st, both sides were to do their summaries when Lila collapsed with a lung hemorrhage due to tuberculosis. In her hospital bed, she limply confessed to second-degree murder, though she later recounted the confession. It would take another year for the rest of the affair to play itself out. On March 1931, Lila, dubbed the Red Lilac of the Cayugas, in the press was tried again. This time, her defense was very direct. She had an affair with Henri Marchand, but did not kill his wife or convince Nancy to do so. Rather, she argued that Marchand had asked many Iroquois to kill his wife because he was quote-unquote tired of her. The artist had not helped his case by casually describing his sexual conquests. With many Iroquois. With many Iroquois. It also did not help convince the all-male jury when it was learned that he had already been remarried to an 18-year-old and had moved to the Albany area. Yeah. Lila was acquitted. It was a victory for the Iroquois defense who had successfully fought off a wildly racist prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. In the thirties. Yeah. Henri Marchand, who was, who called the verdict. A, I'm not saying that what they did was not wrong. Right. It was absolutely horrible what they did, but like, I feel about like, I feel about the same about our justice system. Now it's like, yeah, maybe they didn't do a good thing, but like the way that you treat these people over the course of however many years of trials and bullshit and putting people in prison for shitty reasons, like it's an it, we're, we should be done with that. Right. It's a hundred years later. We should be done. Mm-hmm. It's almost 140 years later now. Like, come on. Yeah. So Henri Marchand, who called the verdict a terrible justice, injustice, died in 1951 at the age of 73. Lila Jimerson eventually married a white man. She lived in Perrysburg near the reservation until her death in 1972 at the age of 79. All right. So that was a serious part of the story. Let's get crazy. I want to make fun of Ouija boards again. Oh, you're about to. Hell yeah. So if you mention the Ouija board in certain company, there's a good chance someone is going to warn you about Zozo. I thought it was Pazuzu. Well, no, it's Zozo. Pazuzu is actually a demon. Oh. (laughs) He's like the prince of hell or something. There is an actual demon named Pazuzu. Uh, Is it it not? I thought that was just a movie thing. No. Oh, boy. So the legend says that Zozo is a demon who shows up through the Ouija board with a frequency that would be terrifying if there was really anything to the story. Thank you, Don. (laughs) 
The paranormal scholar did some digging into whether or not Zozo... Now, I want you guys to keep in mind, any true believers of the Ouija powers or whatever, keep in mind that this is a man who went to a, a place and asked a doll for permission to take a picture. <laughs> so I just want you to realize that even he is like, hey, man, fucking stop. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So the paranormal scholar did some digging into whether or not Zozo has any basis in history, mythology, or folklore. And they found he basically starts showing up in the in earnest in 2009. The same time an Oklahoma man named Darren Wayne posted a story about Zozo online. Oh, wow. The story was a hit and Wayne ran with it. There have been movies, books, and even more stories about Zozo. So what's the deal? Well, according to internet legend, Zozo is an ancient mysterious demon with foggy origins who communicates... From 2009. <laughs> Who communicates with people via a Ouija board. Uh, uh-huh. His preferred style of communication is expressing grim threats through the planchette, though he is also said to be known for making ghoulish sounds, breaking things, and instilling fear for fun in those that conjure him. You'll know you've awoken this craggy old spirit when he spells out his name, Zio Zio. <laughs> for those who can't see, Ruben is bent over in pain right now. That hurt my heart. <laughs> Oklahoma's Darren Evans appears to have the most experience with Zozo. The self-proclaimed Zozoologist. No. Yes. He calls himself a Zozoologist. <laughs> and the sad thing is, every time I did spell check, even after I spell checked multiple times, when it got to that word, it's saying, are you sure you don't mean zoologist? <laughs> it might as well say, you dumb ass. There is no such thing as a Zozoologist. I don't even have any material for this. <laughs> I, it's too good. He runs a site about the demon and appeared as himself in the 2012 film, I Am Zozo. Oh, boy. <laughs> for Evans, it all started when he found a double-sided Ouija board at his girlfriend's home near Tulsa. Don't know why it's double-sided. Apparently, Miss, Misprint. <laughs> it's a toy. Yeah. <laughs> Zozo was inscribed on what Evans describes as the dark side of the board. And an entity by the same name seemingly controlled the planchette each time Evans and his friends sat down for a session. A.K.A. Evans controlled the planchette each time him and his friends sat down for a session. Right. So, Darren... Hey, man, how come you're the only one with a thumb on the board? (laughs) (laughs) Why are your veins poking out there, Devin? I don't understand why you're gripping the board like a piece of paper. (laughs) Darren. Darren. (laughs) Darren soon became obsessed with the board and believed Zozo chose him to share information from the other side. He needs medication. (laughs) Soon, the demon appeared on any Ouija board Evans used, not just the double-sided one. Oh, no. Naturally, many people scoffed at Evans' claim. Yeah, me, I'm one of them. (laughs) That he could summon a demon at will. In fact... Unperturbed, Evans hauled a Ouija board to skeptics' homes and, in his words, turned them into believers. On one occasion, the board repeatedly spelled the word window. The group saw nothing outside, but when the honey, when the homeowner went to the kitchen and glanced out the window, she saw a bald man peering in from the backyard. That was his friend, <laughs> Evan. Evans and the woman later learned that the oh, man... Oh, no, sorry. I got to come up with a different name. That was his friend, Henry. <laughs> 
Evans and the woman later learned that the man had escaped from a nearby mental institution and that he Yeah, had... just like fucking Darren. <laughs> <laughs> and he later had later told the cops that the devil made him look in the window. Uh-huh. <laughs> in the early 90s, around 5 years after discovering Zozo, Evans had a nervous breakdown because he believed demons were following him in human form. His mom and grandmother performed an exorcism of sorts and Darren fell into a deep sleep for 2 days. God, that sounds beautiful. While he slumbered, the woman saw dark shadows flitting around the home. No, she didn't. (laughs) However, Evan's worst experience with Zozo came after the demon claimed it was going to devour his daughter's soul and strike her with an iron tongue. That's gross and graphic. (laughs) I'm going to eat your daughter's soul and strike her with my iron tongue? Yes. Disgusting, Zozo, you fucking pervert. The day after this warning, Evan's three-year-old daughter nearly drowned in the tub and was later diagnosed with MRSA. She was, lit, she was hospitalized and kept in quarantine for two weeks, her swollen tongue hanging grotesquely from her mouth. The child survived, but it was then that Evans realized Zozo was nothing to be toyed with. I hate this <laughs> more than anything. Oh, come on. You're going to use your three-year-old daughter getting diagnosed with a normal... Goddamn diagnosis. But Zozo did it. Zo- no, he didn't. <laughs> Zo- you made Zozo up. Well. In 2009. So. Um, or s- maybe 2008, depending on the fucking vlog you go see or whatever. <laughs> he reported also that Zozo spewed some obscenities in what seemed to Evans like Latin or Hebrew. Those are two very different languages. <laughs> <clears throat> Evans reported how he then rushed into the bathroom where his girlfriend had been giving their daughter a bath. His girlfriend was gone. The tub was overflowing and his daughter was drowning. It sounds like your girlfriend tried to kill your daughter. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe. But maybe Zozo made her do it. Or, even if she didn't do it on purpose, that's neglect, not Zozo. (laughs) I could spell that for you if you like. It's a little bit more complicated than Z-O-Z-O. Though he managed to rescue her in time, Evans claims the demon was responsible for sending his daughter to the hospital later with an inexplicable infection. Although one paragraph earlier, it said it was MRSA. MRSA. And a, a, a very splicable pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Today, Darren no longer plays with Ouija boards and runs Zozo the Ouija Spirit to site to share information about the demon and give others a chance to share their experience. A demon tried to kill my daughter. Now I'm going to capitalize on that. Exactly. Fuck you. Now it sounds like something from out of a horror story and it may well be. There's every Yeah, one from 2009. (laughs) There's every reason to believe that Evans made it all up. But his story has caught on for a reason. He isn't the only person who claims to have been attacked by the Zozo demon. Hundreds have described their own harrowing experiences. I wonder if that's because of the movies and shit with Zozo in them. (laughs) All of the stories regarding the Zozo demon are more or less the same. Someone will sit down to play the Ouija board or anything even remotely resembling one. Sometimes people will meet the demon on a Ouija board or an Ouija app or even just after scribbling. What? There's apparently a Ouija app. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Or even just after scribbling a makeshift board on a piece of paper. Because that's how demons work. (laughs) Well, it's all about intent. Mm -mm. (laughs) 
So at first, they think they're talking to a spirit of some dead relative. They'll ask questions and be startled by just how much the spirit seems to know about their loved one's life. And then suddenly, the arrows will start to fly between the letters Z and O. That's when the threats begin. The Ouija will soon spell out obscenities and blasphemies and promise to drag one's firstborn son down to hell. This one woman wrote on a forum. What if I don't have a son? Well, when you're, you do, it'll I, be. I, but what if I won't have a son? Well, then you've beaten the system. Cool. <laughs> if the system is that easily beatable, <laughs> fuck you for believing in it. So one woman wrote on a form, my nephew started running around the house screaming, Zozo, 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 and we frantically made him stop. The next morning, my nephew wakes, up, wakes me up and asks, as we're waking up, he asks if he can go get breakfast. So I put him in the car and pull out of the driveway. Not two minutes later, a car runs a stop sign and slams into us. Another completely normal thing that happens. Many of the stories showed up on the internet after Evan's creepy account went viral through though some of these ac- accounts were already out there. Evans claims that before sharing his story with the internet... Also, it sounds like Zozo wants to make you not... Like, like if you know who Zozo is, it sounds like he wants to kill you. So maybe stop talking about him or stop lying about it. Right. So he Googled the... Okay, so he says that... I'm sorry I hit your car, ma'am. It's okay. Zozo made you do it. I'm sorry that you're existing i'm sorry but i gotta call the cops on you now <laughs> so he said before he take you to a nice room it's gonna be great hold on you're gonna have a nice coat it's gonna be beautiful the, <laughs> the man is gonna take care of you <laughs> you'll be hugging you'll hug yourself you'll learn to hug yourself the room will be soft yeah so evans claims that before sharing his story with the internet he googled the word zozo himself and found more than a dozen blog posts describing the exact same encounter. Now, some speculate that Zozo is actually derived from the Mesopotamian god Pazuzu, who was known to be the ruler of the demons. Further, a symbol etching out the name Zoso, Z-O-S-O, as a code for the god Saturn appeared in a banned occult book in 1521. It is. None of those are called Zozo. Right. Pazuzu and Zoso. Just want to point yeah. that out. The word Zoso would later be copied by Led Zeppelin as the symbol for their guitarist Jimmy Page. Now Zozo has become has now become a horror fanatic favorite on Reddit and deemed worthy of its own episode of Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel. Which one is Ghost Adventures? Zach Bagans, the guy who owns the museum. The Dybbuk oh, Box guy. Oh, boy. Yes, this is the second appearance of Zach Bagans. Why do we never talk about the dudes that cuss at the goat man? Because... <laughs> Those guys are funny. <laughs> In that episode, Evans and a paranormal crew head back to the scene of the haunting, his ex-home in Oklahoma, where he and his family claim to have been tormented by the demon. Culminating in a move prompted by his daughter allegedly becoming temporarily blind after an interaction with the spirit. Now, Zozo does, in fact, show up in an 1818 book called Le Dictionnaire Infernal. Infernal. It's that very book, in that very book, oh my God, it's the very book Zozo believers and Wayne point to as proof the demon exists. Let me say it for you. He could have found the book, saw the name, and said, I'm going to run with this one. No. I mean, yes. But also, 
just because it's written down in an old book does not make it more true. I'm sorry, <laughs> but the Bible claims that seraphim and Nephilim and giants and shit should be real. And guess what? We have not found any evidence of that. So, old, ancient people made stories too, guys. <laughs> they knew what fiction was. <laughs> So he used it as proof that this demon exists, but there's a big problem. Translate the text from French to English, then read the entire thing, and you find the girl who claims to have been possessed by three demons, Zozo, Mimi, and Capulet, was taken to a church official who then recognized that she was sick, not possessed. Yeah. She ended up being publicly beaten, then imprisoned, and Zozo was called out as a hoax way back then. Thank you. The Ouija board cons- consequently... Even the people whose job it was to be like, demons are real and we can help you, were like, you're sick. Fuck off. So... Please. Please. P- just please. <laughs> so the Ouija board, consequently, is designed to play tricks against us by working off of a principle called the idiomotor effect. Thank you. Our muscles make small subconscious movements without us realizing them. And when we see those movements shift the light piece of plastic on the board, we become convinced that it's happening supernaturally. And then it just keeps happening over and over again until it kind of syncs up with everybody else that's touching the thing. Mm -hmm. And because you guys are all thinking about the same thing, you spell out Zozo because you all know how to spell it. Or you go to yes when you ask a question that you all know the answer to or Whatever it is, it's like it's collective decision making just real fast through your muscles. That's all. So all this amounts to us being able to scare ourselves into believing the paranormal. Mm -hmm. At least that's how skeptics explain what's going on in the case of the mass Zozo demon terror. But the terrifying reality is that in either case, the demons are real. And whether they are in our minds or elsewhere is to be debated. It's hard to say which is more terrifying, the idea that a supernatural demon can possess a child's toy or the idea that the demon of the mind exists in our own subconscious, convincing us that what we fear most is real. I would say it's the second one. Yeah. That's obviously more terrifying because you can't, like, I can break a toy, but I can't convince my own brain of things by myself. Like, you need therapy and shit like that, medications and whatnot for that. Like the thing that's scary that's the thing that's scary is that the, the Ouija board is dangerous if it's given if it's used to manipulate somebody into killing your husband or your wife, or if it's used as an excuse for some horrible shit happening, or if you beat a girl because she believes in demons. Like, yeah, that's how it's dangerous. Right. Well that's that's pretty much it. That's that's the Ouija story. Such as it is. It's just like every other tool that people have. It's like the Bible is the most dangerous book on this planet because of the crusades. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. Because of the men who blow up fucking abortion clinics and Planned Parenthoods and stuff. Like, that's why it's dangerous. People are dying over it because of other people who believe in stupid shit. Right. So. I knew that. Again, Ruben- it's a toy. <laughs> It, it was a toy when it started, and it is still a toy today. Yeah. There isn't a demon that's controlling 
these bad things that are happening to you. And even if there are, I guarantee you, you would not be able to contact it through a fucking toy. <laughs> Which Parker Brothers ended up selling, and it is now owned by Milton Bradley, the same people who make the Game of Life. Are you kidding me? No. Milton. So it went from fucking Parker Brothers mm-hmm. to Milton Bradley, the most famous toy company, to Milton Bradley, the other most famous toy company. Right. And Hasbro owned it at some point. Uh, maybe it is Hasbro owns it now. It might be. Ha- I think whoever it is. Whoever it is. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on. That's like me saying my Easy Bake Oven can contact Satan. <laughs> Fuck you. Well, I've always been curious, you know, the Ouija board, if you look, it says ages eight and up. Right. Like, like there's a big... Like an eight-year-old has the power of the of will to summon a fucking demon. <laughs> As uh, if an eight-year-old even knows what a demon really is conceptually. Right. They're just the big devil. They're, They're parroting you at that point. Right. You remember being eight. Come mm-hmm. on. Now, I did play, and I say play, I did play with a Ouija board. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, It was mid-90s. I was like in my late teens, maybe early 20s. And Sam Kennison. You remember him? No. Comedian Sam Kennison. Mm -mm. Anyways, he died in a car crash. And my friend and I, we were big fans of his. And um, so we made our own Ouija board and tried to contact Sam Kennison. And now I'm just telling you the story. I'm not saying now that I believe it, but we ended up summoning someone named Alex. And there were two other people with us. And when my friend and I were doing it, we would get stuff. But anytime somebody else got on the board, whether one of us was there or not, nothing would happen. And we asked Alex, what do you want? And it said, I want out. And I'll take it back. We were able to get, if, if as long as one of us was on the board, we were able to get, and we had turned off the lights and had hurricane lamps around the the table. And I was off to the side of the table and my friend and somebody else was doing it. And when my friend said, how do you want to, or how do you want to get out? The planchette came off the board towards me and was like moving around the hurricane lamp. And I know now that more than likely my friend was fucking with me, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then I tried again there's a hotel in Lakeland, my hometown, um, called the Lakeland Terrace Hotel. Mm-hmm. And at the time, at one point, it was an abandoned hotel, you know, like a 10 story. I don't remember how tall it was. And supposedly, if you go to the parking garage across the street and look through a certain window, you could see the devil. Now, I'm sure that it was the way the light was refracting through the lights, but it looked like the face of the devil, horns and everything. Mm-hmm. And I had another friend who had always wanted to try a Ouija board. So, again, we made a Ouija board. And we actually went to the back parking lot of this abandoned hotel and started talking, you know, trying to get it to go. And we asked who was there. And I was expecting Alex. And my friend got really upset because it spelled, when we asked, who are you, it said death. And she got angry at me thinking I was faking the whole thing. But if I was faking the whole thing, I would have made it say Alex because that's what I was expecting to contact was the same spirit. So I never messed with a Ouija board again, but it's just one of those better safe than sorry kind of things, even though it is a toy. I understand (laughs) and appreciate that that was your experience, and I alter nothing about what I said in this episode. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not trying to get you to. I just, I fully think, like, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to be like, 
I don't believe in ghosts. It's okay if you do. I'm, and you know, we can raz each other about that. That's fine. I'm just not me and Don, me and whoever I'm talking to. But like for certain things, it's like it crosses this threshold for me of like it's not just silly fun anymore. It's like, you know, people are getting hurt or bullied or like taken advantage of because of this thing. And it's just like, satanic panic type shit always gets me with that because it's like man when i was in first grade harry potter came out yeah and i read harry potter and it was maybe the greatest thing i'd ever read up until that point yeah and i remember my a family friend of ours would constantly be like that's about witches and wizards that's the devil right and it's like no it's not all you're doing is destroying a young child's enjoyment of a fantasy yeah like, you can't be like, that's the devil, and then turn around in Halloween and dress your kid up like a ghost, and that's okay. That's not <laughs> how it works. Like, either you can recognize when a thing is fiction and choose to be have fun with it or choose to not like it, but you should not, like, impose your belief system on an eight-year-old. Right. Like... I'm reading about a kid who, despite all the odds, beats the bad guy. Yeah. At the end of the day. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Just because they call it a wizard and say it's magic. Like, and also, why do people always associate all magic with the devil? As if Jesus didn't do miracles and literally return people from the dead, if you believe in the Bible, literally. Like, that seems like fucking dark magic to me, the way it's described. It's necromancy. Thank you. And, like, how can it be okay if when Jesus does it, but if I do it, or if somebody else even writes about a fictional account of it happening, that's the devil's influence. Right. Then the Bible is the devil's influence. By that exact logic, men wrote the Bible. How do you know that that was the word of God and not the word of the devil? You don't. You take it on faith. Yeah. Like, it's... it's you just... You have to be... I'm not saying you have to. I can't make you do shit. I'm asking you, audience, please be more discerning. Be a little bit more open. Like, just because you believe in ghosts, that doesn't make you open-minded. Open-minded means you are willing to examine your own beliefs and discard them if they are harmful. That's what open-minded is. Right. So do that, please. If, If you get anything else from our podcast, that... Like, you can tell people to eat your ass and still be open-minded, is my point. <laughs> but just keep in mind that even though we're open-minded, Ouija boards are bullshit. Thank you. <laughs> but that's what it means, is like, open-minded means, oh, that is the mechanism by which this thing works, and it isn't a demon that's trying to kill my family. It's just either misfortune or some other legitimate problem that you could be solving, Instead of running to a Ouija board or a medium and having a seance and getting swindled. Yeah. Go solve your problems. Don't rely on toys to do it. Yes. So on that note, um, we're going to shut down here. And uh, we will see you uh, next week. Well, we won't see you. We'll, you know, we'll talk at you. Yeah, we'll talk at you later, as my dad used to say. We'll talk at you later. (laughs) 
So for Campfire Stories, I've been Don. I've been Ruben. And we've been bitching Very skept- skeptical this, this week. <laughs> yes. Very skeptical. All right. Oh, uh, real quick. Sorry. Uh, yeah, Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. Don't shit. bother with Twitter, Instagram, and, and TikTok. All of that is blank right now. You Give would... us five stars on iTunes and Spotify. And Spotify. Um, <clears throat> Share us with your friends. Yes. And follow yes. us on Spotify if you haven't already. Re- um, alt-right slash Republican people, you know, the, the ones. <laughs> if you have friends that you're like, man, they're stupid. I bet they'd like this. Send it to them, too. <laughs> They won't listen long. Send this to all your liberal friends. That's that's our demographic. Uh huh. That's why our biggest audience is in Texas. Yeah, you think that they don't need, <laughs> a, a, like, yeah, because all the liberals in Texas have to listen to us secretly. Oh, you see, we're we're like we're like secrets. We're we're the secret liberals. Oh, and PCP Pete. PCP Pete. Yeah. That's fresh, Charlie. PCP Pete, I bet they hang out together. They probably do. PCP Pete and Sassafras Charlie in the afterlife. I'm <laughs> sorry, PCP Pete did die of an overdose. <laughs> well, Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> His New Year's resolution was to get clean, and now he's in the sky. Yay! All right, <laughs> bye. <laughs>